1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read for you verses 17 all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Or some translation said, uh, should be emptied of its power. It's a better translation. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer? Of this age, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, uh, because the foolishness of God is wiser than the man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For if you're calling, brethren, for if you see your calling, then not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is, is it, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was with, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. It's a key word, power. That your faith should be, uh, not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For any single person who's ever been serious about their Christian walk, who's ever said to themselves as you begin to believe that the Bible is truly God's word, an inspired text message from heaven that is infallible, perfect, and without error. Any serious Christian, I don't care if you've been saved one week or 40 years, will have this question, how can I be used by God? How can I go out and be effective in sharing the gospel with people? How can I be effective 
in my words and in my actions to influence people for Jesus Christ, for the glory of the triune God. If you've ever had a serious thought about Christ and believe in him and love him, you have asked that question about yourself. And here in the portion of scripture has given a very thorough answer on how we can be used by God. At first sight, as we read these verses, we may think that they have to do with power, just power, especially the power of God. The verses, um, and even let me point out a few that we didn't read, but first, uh, the cross uh, of Christ be made of no effect. That is, the power of God is no, made of no effect to the Jews or the Greeks. You have also in verse 118, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24 talks about Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, but in the demonstration of the spirit of power. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, a verse we didn't read, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Also, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, which is a, a key verse to uh, the letters to the Corinthians from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, not just in the scripture that I've read for you this morning, but it is the major theme of First and Second Corinthians that God would use his people in their weakness and not in their worldly strengths. It is a major theme with the Corinthian correspondence. Here we have several references that come down to four different types of power that are all connected, of course. That is the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, the power of the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, your power of the cross, specifically out from the gospel, and the power of the Holy Spirit, all mentioned in the verses that I've read to you this morning. Now, to take a different approach to this, I want you to understand that just like the sons of Sceva, seeing that the apostle Paul and Peter and others we're casting out demons by the name of Jesus Christ that these verses themselves make an immediate appeal to a culture that absolutely and positively worships power. An immediate appeal. Three great ambitions in life is money, fame, and influence. And all three of those are a concealed drive for power. We see this thirst and lust for power in politics, in industry, in business, in public life, even in primitive societies in Africa where the witch doctor will trade secrets and power for money. And unfortunately, we see this dominating the church 
here in the century that we live in. And denominational disputes, and top-level ecclesiastical power struggles, and local churches and parachurch ministries that seek to become world empires. And we see it in the pulpit, which is a dangerous place for any child of God to occupy. Power. It's more intoxicating than alcohol and it's more addictive than drugs. Let's be honest. Why do we want to receive the power of God? Is it power for God's glory? Power for holiness? Power for humble service? Or is it power to boost our own ego? To spend it on our own lust, a mask for personal ambition, to minister to our own self-importance, to extend our influence, to impress, to dominate, to manipulate. The lust for power is a dangerous thing if it is not for the glory of Jesus Christ. And let me say this as well. Even the desire for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us can be and so often is a concealed drive for having power to dominate people in their congregations. Oh, if there's a Holy Spirit out there that can pour on me to make everybody understand how awesome we are, then give me that power, oh God. J.R. Tolkien understood this very well in his books, The uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits. And that's why one of the central themes of J.R. Tolkien's books is power and weakness, which is the title of today's sermon, Power Through Weakness. He understood that they didn't need mighty beings to conquer evil, but even somebody as small as a hobbit could go roaring into an army and destroy it because God uses weak people to do mighty things. I believe that in my country, in America, that many people believe that a free America is the power of the gospel in the world, and that is not true. The power of the gospel in the world is the power of the gospel. And America does not have to be strong for the gospel to be strong. America does not have to be powerful for the gospel to be powerful because the gospel is powerful enough all by itself. The wisdom of the world does not greatly value humility. Consider Uzziah's pride in 2 Chronicles when he was actually a king who began very well, who became powerful, desired an office that didn't belong to him, the office of the Levites and the priests. And God struck him with leprosy. You contrast all those biblical characters and all the politicians and power-hungry pastors today with Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 20, 24, 28. And when the ten heard it, and that's when James and John, what did they hear? When James and John, you remember, went to Jesus and said to him, may we, us two, sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand when you come to your kingdom? The lust for power. 
They come to Jesus like, listen, we know you're getting ready to establish a kingdom that's going to be awesome. Let me sit at your right hand. We want the highest office in your kingdom. Jesus is like, will you suffer the same kind of suffering that I will suffer with? Oh, yeah, no problem. Whatever you do, we'll do. They had no idea what they were talking about. Jesus said, this isn't for me to, to give you this kind of power. One on my right. And, and, the, and Matthew 20, 24, 28 begins with, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased. Why? Because they wanted those positions, not James and John. A struggle for power even among the 12 disciples that Jesus had called. And Jesus gives them this teaching and exhortation and rebuke. He says... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and these who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be what? Servant of all. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. If there were ever one thing that we could pick where the world and God's kingdom contradict one another, it is at the point of humility that brings power and pride that brings destruction. It is the opposite in the world. Humility brings destruction to the world and pride brings power, confidence. It was at this point that we're talking about this morning. And here in Paul's letter, that we just the portion of scripture we read, we see three examples of power through weakness. We see, number one, the example of power through weakness in the gospel. Number two, we see power through weakness in God's people, the converts. And number three, we see power and weakness in the apostle Paul himself. So number one, power and weakness in the gospel. The Bible says that this was offensive to the Jews because they seek after a sign. This is foolishness to the Greeks because they seek after lofty philosophy, wisdom of the world. They did not understand, as John Stott said, weakness is the arena in which God's power is most effectively manifest. You know what? Before, let me, let me point out something that we need to understand before I go to those three things that the scripture is talking about. Number one, God is all-powerful. It's an ancient old doctrine that we believe in. God is omnipotent or omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Do you remember when Pilate said to him in John 18, don't you know I have the power, he said, to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no power except it's been given to you from above. And in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, especially John chapter 3, and as many places from John chapter 1 to John chapter 6, it tells us that Jesus is the one who came from above. So essentially what 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, is saying to Pilate is, you would have no power except I gave it to you. You think, Jesus is telling Pilate, you think you have power over me? Because you're a governor? That's laughable, church. Even in the Psalms, it says, when the nations rage against God, that God laughs at them. It's like, you got to be kidding me. It's like an ant picking a fight with a lion. There's no way that Pilate had power over Jesus. On a side note, I heard that the new governor, which I don't know if he's good or bad. I'm not saying anything. I heard that the new governor of this county offered to buy the land, that 42 acres that Samaritan's persons. And he was told, no. You know why? Because God's in control and he wants us to have that land. Finally, a politician is told no when it comes to land. So you look at power through weakness in the gospel. Why was it such an offense to the Jews? As it says here, well, it tells us why. They seek after a sign of power. The word Messiah itself means conqueror, defender. He who would come to save the Savior of God's people, the Savior of the nation of Israel, out of the nation of Israel, what would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be a descendant, a lineage where somebody would be born in power, born to conquer the governments that oppressed the nation of Israel that made them poor and not be able to afford rent or school fees. Conquer that person. We want a sign. Don't sit here and come and tell us you're going to die on a cross. Don't sit here and say that if we believe in you as our Messiah, that then you're going to go die. We have conditions in which we are going to believe that you are the Messiah. And the conditions is you help us with poverty. You help us with governmental oppression. You help us get out of the situation we're in. Then we'll believe in you. And that's why the Jews came to Jesus and said, give us a sign. And what did Jesus say? A wicked And a perverse generation seeks after a sign. He's not talking about any sign. He's talking about the signs that that he wanted them to give. The sign of making them wealthy financially. The sign of overthrowing Rome so that they could become a sovereign nation again. That's the sign that they wanted. And he told them no, straight to their face. And he said, you will get a sign. He wasn't saying signs are bad. He's saying your signs are bad. The ones that you want for God has given you a sign. And this is the one you get. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And the idea is he will rise again. If you need a greater sign than the resurrection, then you are wicked and perverse. If you need a greater sign than the resurrection in believing that Jesus is the Christ, then you are a wicked person seeking after something that would fulfill your own personal dreams and your own personal desires, and I won't give it to you. That's what Jesus is saying. It was offensive to the Jews 
that Jesus would tell them he's going to die on the cross, which is the essential doctrine of the gospel. Not just to the common Jew or to the religious Jew or to the religious leader like the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees. It was offensive to the disciples. Don't you remember when Jesus kept telling them over and over and over again, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to rise like a broken CD or something. And most of the time, they didn't even understand what he was talking about. I just got so distracted with those two chairs. Did somebody mess with my mind on purpose? I'm fine. Um, golly, a man who utters his mind is a fool. Forgive me, Lord. Peter comes to him. Peter! And rebukes the creator of the universe. Can you imagine? Lord, come here. I'd like to rebuke you. It's like a contradiction right off the bat. You don't rebuke your Lord. And he starts rebuking Jesus because he begins to understand that my leader, my master, my Lord is going to go bleed out on a cross. And that ruins my plans for the kingdom that the Messiah is supposed to set up on earth. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Peter. Get thee behind me, foolish one. Oh, good. Somebody said it. Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is a satanic thought to think that God exists to give you what you want. That is a, that's how Satan thinks. That's how demons think. That God exists to fulfill your lust. God exists to give you your dreams. God exists to do what you want him to do. God exists to love us and to be glorified in that love and to be worshipped through the cross. It's incredible. It was offensive to the Jews. And then it says, not only was it offensive to the Jews because they seek after a sign, it's foolishness to the Gentiles or foolishness to the Greeks. This Greek philosophy, they considered themselves geniuses, by the way. And actually, there were some real geniuses amongst them. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. Even to this day, we Christians who have ever read some of their works marvel at the genius of some of these men. They were genius. They believed in oratory. They believed in coming up with such a great plan that is so sophisticated, that's so refined, that, uh, that, that you could accomplish anything through the mind. Mind worship. Intellectual worship. That even still today, we get impressed with really smart people. So much so that we see the power of an intellect, and because we desire power, oftentimes we read our Bible and Christian books just to accumulate a lot of powerful information so that people can see how influential we are. You know, I had to tell somebody recently, stop reading your Bible for personal reasons and read your Bible to glorify Christ. If you're going to read your Bible to grow in knowledge for knowledge's sake, 
then you'd be better off not learning it. If you're going to grow in uh, uh, knowledge for the sake of humility and knowing who Christ is, man, start reading it. If you're going to read tons of philosophical and Christian books for knowledge's sake, stop. If you're going to do it to become a sharper tool in the hands of God, then do it. See, our motives in which we do things speak of who we are in our hearts. You know, even James talks about this. Have you ever prayed so hard for the power of the Holy Spirit? It is my number one prayer, church. I don't want to walk on this stage alone. If I'm alone, I'm going to really do a bad job. God has to be up here with me. And he has to take over this message. And he has to take over your minds and your hearts. It says in James, you have not because you ask not. And even after you ask the ideas, you have not because you ask amiss to consume it on your own. What? Lust. I think there are a lot of people asking for the power of the Holy Spirit so they can be like the sons of Sceva, consuming on their own lust. Why don't, you, why don't you think God gives any real power to any of these signs and wonders ministries? There are no signs and wonders happening with prophet or war. Have you caught that by now? They're all manufactured, hallucinogenic, manipulative crusades. You know, one time I was speaking out against prophet of war in some village a couple hours away, and I had some uh, repentance and holiness people that really came after me. They were, they were mad at me. Is that a bad impression? I wasn't doing that like a Kenyan. They would do that anywhere. And I was like, no, talk to me. Let's just talk. Don't be mad. You know what? You know what they told me? They're like, if you can't see the signs and wonders and believe it's from God, then then you're a fool. They were telling me, I, I, I don't believe in God's move. And you know what their reference was? That old poster that was across the road on Nairobi Road during one of his meetings and a tornado coming down on the meeting. That was the evidence. They were, they were like, this. I'm like, I'm telling you, these people in that village I was never heard of Photoshop a day in their lives. They walked and saw the sign. They're like, look, this is it power of God. No, God goes out of his way not to be involved in those things because they don't honor Christ for who he is. I'm telling you guys, I'm not saying that to be controversial. I'm saying that through years of study and experience. When I go into a city, one of the things I do is look for a heretical church. I was in Atlanta recently. I tried to catch a Creflo dollar service, but they were closed. <laughs> I'm weird. I like that stuff. Wouldn't that, wouldn't, wouldn't that have been embarrassing if you were watching Creflo Dollar and the camera screened over, you saw your pastor sitting in the audience? I was going to disguise myself, you know. The power of God. You know why it was so offensive to the Greeks? One of the reasons? They're like, can God not come up with a smarter plan than have his son murdered? It was intellectually contemptible to the Greek. The cross. Intellectually, it's like, listen, 
We serve gods of power like Zeus, not this Yahweh that can't even come up with a better plan than having his son slaughtered. It was completely intellectually contemptible to the Greek. But we saw the power of the gospel in the weakness of the cross. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews because it's a stumbling block to the morally proud. It is a stumbling block to the Greeks because it's a stumbling block to the intellectually proud. And it's a stumbling block to any pastor who seeks after power to exalt themselves other than Christ. Now, secondly, you see the power through weakness in God's people. Not many wise, not many strong, not many noble. The purposes of God in choosing intellectually contemptible things of the world is to put to shame the wise. In God's genius, God uses the weak things of the world to show his demonstrations of power. The important phrase in this portion of Scripture is the prepositional statement, weak things of the world. It's not the weak things of God. It's not weak in and of itself. It is saying that what the world believes is powerful and usable, God says is weak and unusable. And what God says is powerful and usable, the world says is weak and unusable. The world says you need a lot of wealth to be used. Self-confidence. Walk on that stage as if you own that thing. We do this, people. You and I. We have this worldliness in us called the flesh. Where we see people who are beautiful who are handsome, who are tall, who are strong, who are wealthy, and we think to ourselves, even as Christians, God can use that person. We do this. Have you guys ever heard of the halo effect? The halo effect was a study saying that people will even, it's effect when somebody beautiful and smart and handsome walks in the room, it catches everybody's attention. But when a homeless, dirty, smelly, dumb person walks in the room, and I'm not saying people are dumb, I'm saying what the world thinks, then we want to avoid such people. We are drawn to people who can benefit us and who we are attracted to. And the halo effect did a, uh, is that study. And so a study to prove the halo effect was a series of two people applying for jobs. And these people would go in, one a very handsome, beautiful, physically demanding person would go in and hardly have any qualifications for the job. And then somebody who was in the world's eyes, not beautiful, not handsome, not strong, but who had incredible qualifications for the job. They went to school for it, they've been educated, they've been proven, they have a resume, a CV, would go in and get the interview. And over 80% of the time, the person who was physically appealing would get the job. 
And they went in to do the study and say, hey, why did you give that person the job when they were, more, when they were underqualified and that other person you didn't give the job was overqualified for the job? This was the common answer of all the interviews. I just had a feeling about the person. I'm sure you had some feelings about that person. We do that. You and I do that. And if you don't think you do that, remember Samuel, the greatest man of God in the world at that time, the prophet that God used? He went in because Saul was rejected and one of Jesse's sons is accepted. And he looked at who? The firstborn of Jesse, Eliab, and he said, this must be the Lord's anointed. And why did he do that? Because God said, Samuel, don't look at his physical stature. For God does not see as man sees. For God looks at the what? The heart. The heart. We do this. Samuel does it. This is just how we're wired in the flesh. It's not who God is. Thirdly, we see the power in the weakness, the power of God in the weakness of Paul himself. There in chapter 2, he says, Brethren, I did not come to you with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing amongst you except Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness. In fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. How much better would it be to have your speech with the spirit of power rather than persuasiveness of words? Listen here. Do you know, a lot of people think that Paul himself was a really bad speaker. I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. I do think he did not have a physically demanding presence. It does indicate in that he was probably a short guy who was physically non-attractive. Maybe at one point he was attractive, but all the beatings and the stonings and the rocks hitting his face possibly messed up his jaw. And he just, the Corinthians wanted somebody better. They're like, man, we want a guy who really impresses us when he's preaching. We want one of those guys that we just feel good after leaving church saying, man, that was a powerful sermon. What a powerful preacher. Paul was not that. But I don't believe the Bible is saying that he wasn't a good teacher. I think the Apostle Paul was probably the second greatest teacher in the history of God's church. The first would be Jesus Christ. This is what I think it's saying. I did not come to you with persuasiveness of speech. He did not speak. His speech was not like the oratory of the Greeks and the Jews. He didn't come and try to impress people with how he spoke. He was just teaching the word of God in his own voice. Man, why do pastors think they need to bob around? I don't mind if people walk around. I do that. But why do they think they need to change their voice and do all this crazy stuff to be powerful? The, the word of God is powerful enough. Has anybody ever been annoyed by it? 
Hey! He's just sitting there like, just, we open the Bible and read some scripture, please? In your own voice? They don't do that. I know I've said this a lot. They don't do that at the grocery store. They don't go into Nivus and go, where's the Ugali? They don't do it. They do it on the pulpit. Why? Because they think it's powerful. Let me tell you, there's no substitute for the, God, the word of God being preached verse by verse. There's no substitute in a man who understands his incomplete inadequacy to be used by God. Or his, excuse me, his complete inadequacy to be used in of himself, his own strength, his own mind. I don't care how smart you, got, you are, God cannot use a prideful person. He just can't. I don't want you to misunderstand here. I don't want you to think you have to suppress your personality, to manufacture a synthetic weakness, or to cultivate a fake frailty. This is what the scripture is saying. It is an honest acknowledgement that you and I are completely inadequate to save souls and disciple people without the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the cross. We are completely inadequate without those things. What are the greatest ways that we as Christians who desire to be used of God can tell if we believe in the power of God over our own abilities is this. How much do you pray? And what do you pray? Do you wake up every morning understanding how unusable you are without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and you pray God to fill you with the Holy Spirit? Listen, if there was an expositional summary that I can give with all of these verses, it's, it's this. It is not saying you have a rich person and you have a poor person because the world believes that we can be used by riches, I'm going to only use the poor. Or you have a very intellectually smart person and somebody who has... Uh, low IQ, I'm going to use the person who's dumb. Or you have somebody who's very strong physically, and you have somebody who's weak physically. I'm going to use the weak. That's not what God is saying. If God were saying that in the scripture, which a lot of people get that impression, it would make God somebody who has favorites. Like he picks a poor person just because they're poor. He doesn't do that. Or he picks a dumb person just because they're dumb. He's not saying that. This is who God chooses. He chooses humble people. He will exalt the humble and he will bring down the proud. That is the message that Paul's trying to get across. The book of Numbers talks about this in the verse that says, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of the person whose heart is perfect towards him. The message 
that Paul's trying to say is an ancient message all the way from the Old Testament straight through the New, and this is it. God uses humble people. People who don't rely on their money to save souls. People who don't think their intellect can actually convince somebody to get saved. But we understand it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can accomplish these works. And we must totally trust and lean on God at all times to be used by God. That's the message Paul's getting across, church. And listen, if you don't have a desire to be used by God, you haven't even begun the first step. And this message is not even applicable. You need to cultivate a desire to want to be used out in that world for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then after you get that desire, this is how you get used by Jesus Christ. I have no abilities in and of myself. I have, my intellect cannot do that. My money cannot. In, a real change of the Holy Spirit or a real change of the heart comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. To desire power is a dangerous thing if you desire power and influence for the wrong reasons. We must desire the power of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus Christ can be glorified, so that people can see how awesome He is, not how awesome we are. Amen? This message is so important that it is a common theme throughout the entire Scripture. And also, church, I want you to know it's the number one theme for the Corinthian church. They thought their affluence, there was many rich people in the church. They thought that amazing oratory or signs and wonders was the demonstration of God's power. The demonstration of God's power is a humble heart desperately understanding that they are useless without God. That's what Paul is speaking to them. That's what Paul is speaking to us this morning. Let's have the worship team come forward. As we sing this last song. Guys, don't forget about all the stuff we're doing this week. Um, I forgot this in the first two services. Sign up if you haven't signed up. You're going to really do us a disservice if we don't know how many people we're supposed to feed on, on Saturday. So sign up for the conference in the back. I'm so happy to see you guys. I went to, uh, I had this 15-hour flight from, um, from America to Nairobi. It's the first time I've ever taken a flight straight through. And, and it was Kenya Airways. I was so excited to see Kenyans. I hadn't seen them in months. So I'm walking on the, the plane, like talking to the stewards. I'm like, what's up? I've missed you. And they're like, you don't know me. So I'm happy to see you today. I hope you guys have been praying for me. I, I, I pray for you often. 
Let's worship the Lord now in our offering. Why don't we stand as we pray and the deacons and ushers come forward. Lord, we need you. I think that's the message of the day, Lord, is we need you. Every hour we need you. Every moment. We really can't accomplish any spiritual work without you. We can't accomplish a transformed life without the power of your word and spirit working in and through us. And I pray that you would find us a people understanding our own weakness, our own inabilities. And as we recognize this, we become emptied of ourselves so that we can become full of you. I know I have been full of myself at times, thinking I can go out and share the gospel or go preach or go help in the power of my own strength, which is no power. I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to come through our church, not for the sake of self-glory, but for the sake of Christ's glory. I pray you would bring an illumination in our minds that everyone here this morning would understand this message deep in their hearts and that they would become a person whose heart is after God, just like David, just like Paul, so that you can show yourself strong on behalf of our hearts who are directed towards you. We need you, Lord. It's as simple as that. We need you. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us of unrighteousness. Help us to forgive others who've sinned. We show an expression of our love and dependence and even our faith as we give our finances now. May you use this gift and this love offering to expand your kingdom and to enable us to exist as a church to proclaim your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.